number two tonight, and if you are visiting, I will preface a few things about our, our time in the Word of God tonight. One is, <clears throat> we're continuing our series. We got out of it for a couple Sunday nights. We had uh, two Bible colleges, uh, singing groups that came through the last two Sunday nights, and we really were blessed by their message of song and their testimonies. And of course, uh, it's exciting to see young people preparing to serve the Lord with their lives. And uh, of course, Lauren's here, and Lauren goes to the college I graduated from. Wonderful place, and God's doing a work in many of these colleges, and we're, we're, we're totally supportive of colleges that are staying true to the Word of God. And so tonight we get back into our series, and uh, if you're in here tonight, did you, maybe somebody made it in here tonight that did not grab one of the uh, outlines. Uh, is there anybody raise your hand did not receive an outline or grab one on the way in? And so it looks like you've done well in that area, but if you did not get one, there's some on the table out there. But uh, as we get in back into this tonight, uh, the series I've entitled this is Right Standing with God. And as we continue our series, uh, we're going through the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is a, is a, is a rich book. Uh, it's a doctrinal book, especially in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And uh, so if you're visiting with us, uh, here's a couple of my things I'm going to preface. One is uh, we've, we've already done some introductory type of messages before we got into uh, even chapter 1, verse 1. And, uh, and I just want you to, to know this. Number one is God loves everyone. Amen? Amen? And so because God loves everyone, we are to love everyone. So the Bible says God so loved the world. And so when it comes to people of the world, we should love everyone. doesn't matter who they are, what their background is, what their religious preference, we should love everyone. And so when we get into this message tonight, what if you haven't been here uh, in a while on Sunday night or you're visiting tonight, I want you to understand that in no way am I picking on the Jews, all right? And it's going to seem like I've got an issue with the Jew, but what I'm going to do tonight with God's help is I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stay biblical. I'm just going to preach the passage. Uh, I'm not going to give my opinions tonight or anything like that. But what you, if you weren't here before or you forget is we've already looked at two other groups in chapters 1 and 2 before we got to this portion. We looked at how, first of all, the heathen, according to God, is guilty. And then we looked at the hypocrite in chapter 1 and going into chapter 2, how they are guilty before God. And so tonight sums up that third group that, that Paul writes. Remember, Paul's writing God's words, not his. And so this portion we're looking at tonight deals with the, the Hebrew, the Jewish people. And uh, I'm going to use a term synonymously. I'm going to use the term religious in, in, along with this matter of Jewish people by the way, Jewish people aren't the only people that are religious, okay? And religious, it could be a term, again, I'll let you kind of define that. I can tell you a little bit more about it, but I think you'll see it as we bring it out in the message tonight. And that's why I said, I, I find as a preacher, it's better to be a Bible preacher because I don't get myself in trouble if I just preach the Bible. When I go outside the Bible, that's when I get myself in trouble, all right? So I'm going to do the best I can to stay within the confines of it. But again, I want you to understand that this is really part three of those who stand trial before God. Because the reality, and we'll see this next Sunday night, is all the world is guilty. We're all sinners, amen? Every last one of us. And so I wanted to say that as we get started tonight. So we're going to begin in chapter 2, and if you want to follow along with me, I'll let you stay seated tonight, a little lengthier portion of Scripture. We're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 17, and we're going to continue into chapter 3, verse number 8. And the Bible says, beginning in chapter 2, in verse number 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and, and resteth uh, in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest uh, his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, be, being instructed out of the law, 
and are confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Thou therefore which teacheth another, teachest thou not thyself? Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. For circumcision verily profiteth, if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteous of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, uh, if it fulfill the law, judge thee, who by the letter and circumcision doth transgress the law. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is, is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly, because that unto them what were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath uh, more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be uh, slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come, whose damnation is just. Now that's a lot right there. As you take a look at that, we're going to make our way through this. And so I want you to think about, about this by way of introduction tonight, and that is that we've heard to this point, and I've mentioned to you, please, in chapters 1 and 2, by uh, those groups of people that God would liken us to, the, the heathen and the hypocrite. Now, the heathen is one that, as we looked at some verses, a heathen person has a religion that is perverted. When you look at the hypocrite, he has a religion that is pretended. Uh, as we, we look at this, we should not be surprised then that the Jew believes that unlike the heathen and unlike the hypocrite, that he is better than them, that he should be acquitted for who he is. The Hebrew here represents the man that doesn't have a perverted religion, does not have a pretended religion. He's a man that has a powerless religion. Uh, these verses that we just looked at, they set before us a man who is zealous for religion, but he is also a one that is a stranger to Christ. You see, that's the way I was. I was religious growing up. Uh, I knew all about God, but I didn't know God. And we see this is identified here. By the way, Christianity itself is full of people like this. And, and the religious person is probably, in my opinion, out of all the people I've ever talked to and out of all the people I've ever witnessed to, I think the one that is the most difficult is the one that's the closest to the truth. 
the one that is religious because they believe that they're good and that they don't need uh, what the law has to say or what God has to say. So I think they're very difficult people to reach with the gospel and there are millions of people in the world today and I've probably talked to many of them already who think that they are already good enough. You talk to many people and, and you ask them, uh, if you were to die today, are you 100% sure? And they'll say to you, well, I, I believe I'm good enough. And, I, and I'll say to them, but I asked you if you were 100% sure. And see, they just think that they've lived a good life, that they're a good person. But what does the Bible say? There's none good, no, not one. See, nobody's good enough to get to heaven on their own. So when we look at this portion here and we look at these people, the, the Hebrew people, I want you to notice three things that, that God allows Paul to identify about them and about their standing with God. Notice it begins with their shallow orthodoxy. Now the word orthodoxy is, is just another word for their beliefs. Uh, it's the way that they think. And, and few people, uh, when you look at the Bible, especially in the New Testament, that probably had more orthodoxy, the, the one that comes to my mind is a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, we, we know that later on, after the grace of God, he, he became known as Paul, the great apostle. But this man was an amazing man. He was very orthodox in his beliefs. And notice what he says about himself in Acts 26 and verse 5. He says this, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Paul says, look, I was a very, I was, when you talk about religious people, I was at the front of the line. Nobody knew the word of God probably better than I did. And Paul knew how religious orthodoxy can make a sincere person, listen to this, can make the most sincere person an enemy of God. You say, how do you say that, Pastor? Well, look at a couple verses later in the same chapter. chapter. Look at Acts 26, verse 9, where the Bible records, he says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things, look at the word, contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Here's a man that is orthodox in his beliefs. And he says, look, I, 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 I'm doing all I can to oppose the things of God, to oppose this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when you think about orthodoxy, their beliefs, they're in religion, there are two things, two basic requirements that are presupposed. First of all, letter A is that these people that have a shallow orthodoxy that he's describing here, they have access to the truth. The Bible records this in chapter 2 and verse number 17 and verse number 18. Look at it again. He says in verse 17, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and resteth in the law, and maketh thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent being instructed out of the law. Now, what Paul was doing here as he's recording these words was Paul was confirming the truth that the Jews, they had openly, they, they had full access to the truth. They had, been, they had been committed by God, the oracles of God, and they had the advantage of their birth as a Hebrew or as a Jew. They were taught in the synagogue from their childhood. They were instructed in the, in the law. They, they were taught to keep the Sabbath and certain religious days as they grew up. But you have to understand that these people, they were religious and they were living in and around people that just like today, people that were pagans, they were superstitious, they were idolaters. So when you think about this, the average Hebrew, as Paul writes here, they feel like to themselves, I'm not as other people. I'm not a pagan. I'm not an idolater. I'm not given over to superstition. See, they felt in their heart that they were better than those that were around them. 
And as, as they considered this, Paul was confirming the truth here that they had access to the truth. See, all the people around them, they, they felt, were groping in the darkness. And what the Jew always rested in is that they could lean on the law, that they had God's law. So the Jew felt that they had an advantage, and that advantage was the Hebrew Bible. The Jews were, notice, they were confident of the truth that God gave to them. Look at verse number 19, where the Bible records here, and art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hath the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. So the Jew was taking confidence. He, he set himself as a teacher of others, and he did it in such a way that he became prideful and he began to scorn those that may not have been as instructed. But you have to remember, they were privileged people. And, and many of those people, they were flat out ignorant. But we live in a day where people are illiterate to the Word of God. And, and folks, look, part of our job as Christians, part of my job as a pastor is to teach the Word of God, to instruct the Word of God, to help people to understand the Word of God. Now, look, I can do all I can to define it, to preach it, to teach it, but the most important element is the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit's going to help us to understand it. But see, the Jews set themselves up as someone that was special. They were the teachers of others and they had access to the truth. And that access that they were given, look, I don't know about you, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I'm not, I'm not saying feel sorry for pastor, woe is me and all that. Some of you know because you grew up in a Christian home, and I'm going to tell you something, you were a privileged person to grow up in a Christian home. But along with that privilege comes responsibility. And this is what Paul is trying to help those that are Jews to understand is along with that privilege, along with that access, comes grave responsibility. See, we're accountable for everything that we have. And, and so as, as he's trying to help them understand here that they've been given access to the truth, that there's responsibility, that access that they had was to an open Bible. And it, again, it, it increases a person's accountability to the truth. See, not only did they have access to the truth, but secondly, they had accountability to the truth. Now, Paul points out here a, a mere head knowledge. I mean, there's a lot of people, especially these religious people, they have a head knowledge and they've got it all up here, but a head knowledge of the truth that is divorced from a life of obedience to God is not something that pleases God. A religious experience in other words, where it's, it's all talk and no walk. That's why some people are. You know, they're religious on the outside. There's no experience. There, there hasn't been God working there in their hearts, not because God doesn't want to, but they need to understand that when you're all talk and no walk, that will not stand the test on the day of judgment. So the matter that Paul brings up here when he begins to talk about the accountability that they had to the truth, notice there was the matter of spiritual insincerity. Look at verse, uh, verse number uh, 21 in our passage here tonight. And the Bible says in verse number 21, Thou therefore which teacheth another, teachest thou not thyself? Teachest thou not thyself? Now when you look at these words, I mean... I enjoyed, I never thought I would find myself in that role, but I've enjoyed over the years opportunities that God's given me to teach. I like to teach. Uh, as a matter of fact, and people ask me, do you miss uh, being in a Bible college? And I'll tell them all the time, I don't miss it because this is God's will for my life. But I, I, I'll tell them, I'll say, listen, I enjoyed, I loved the teaching. What I didn't like was grading all the projects and all the tests and all that. Right, Lauren? Students don't like those things either. But I enjoy the teaching aspect. But do you know that the goal of teaching is that there would be the changing of the behavior? That's the goal of teaching. And, and especially when it comes to the Word of God. The teacher, as he teaches, 
what, he's what Paul is trying to illustrate here, what God's trying to get across is that the teacher must apply these precepts, what he's teaching to others, he must apply those same precepts to himself before applying it to those he's teaching. One of the things that I have found, and sometimes people will say things to me about a message or something that I said, and I'll say to them, listen, as, as the preacher said many years ago, what makes a good message is because that message actually begins in the heart of the messenger. See, God's already worked on me about the message before I come in here to share it with you. And what God is doing is God is teaching me. And how foolish would it be for me to teach you something that I'm not allowing God to teach me? And that's what Paul is saying here is, is he's saying, look, there is a spiritual insincerity here. I love, I love many of the, the prophets of the Old Testament because of the stand that they took. And, and if you study out the life of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and many others in the Old Testament, you'll find that every one of them lived in a very, very difficult time. And Isaiah was one of those that if you look in the book of Isaiah, God has Isaiah record what are called the woes, W-O-E-S. And he begins to record all these woes, these judgments that God's going to bring on the nation of Israel. That's not a popular thing, but yet that's what God gave to Isaiah to give to the people. You can go to the book of Isaiah and read it yourself. Now, it would have been easy for Isaiah to stand up in his day and record those words and say, you know what, Israel, you're a bunch of rotten, filthy sinners, and you need to get your life right with God. But what's interesting is when you get down to verse number six, Isaiah, having seen God high and lifted up, he writes these words, woe is me. Sounds to me like he was a wise man. He was allowing God to teach him so that he could help others. And so when we think about this matter of, look, spiritually, we need to be a sincere people. And the, 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 the Jew here, as Paul is writing, they are spiritually insincere. And the height of spiritual insincerity is to teach others and not learn the lesson for yourself. Isaiah learned that lesson. But not only does he talk about his spiritual insincerity, but he also talks about the matter of spiritual insensitivity. Spiritual insensitivity. Go back to verse 21. Look what it says here. He begins with, Thou therefore which teacheth another, teachest thou not thyself. And then he, watch this. Thou that preachest, a man should not steal, dost thou steal? Thou that sayest, a man should not commit adultery, Dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? So we have to be careful because, folks, look, oftentimes we're pointing the finger when there's three fingers pointing back at us. And what does the Bible say in Numbers 32, 23? Be sure that your sin will what? Find you out. Be careful. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Judge not, lest ye be judged. See, these folks here that he's describing, they, they were spiritually insensitive. Paul points out that the Jew was guilty, and he was guilty in, in many ways. He was guilty ethically, he was guilty morally, he was guilty spiritually of that behavior. They were preaching the high and holy standards of the law, but they were unconcerned about their life and the life that they were living. They were living a lie. This is the religious person. You see, Paul says, look, you, are, you need to understand that you've been given access to the truth and you're going to be accountable for everything that God has given to you. And he talks in that accountability about there needs to be a spiritual sincerity, but they didn't have it. He talks about there needs to be a spiritual sensitivity, and they didn't have it. But there was also the matter of a spiritual insolvency. Look at verse 23 of our passage. He goes on to say these words. Thou that makest thy boast 
of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. You look at those verses and you see the, the Jews here having access to the truth that they, they were a liability to God. Isn't that sad? Look, if anything, our lives should, should be lived out as Christians to bring glory to God. Instead of being an asset to God, they were being a liability to God. Their behavior was actually turning strangers away from God. The Bible mentions Gentiles here, talking about those that were far off. Hey, if there ought to be anything said about a Christian is that our light and our life is lived in such a way that we attract people to the Savior. But here in this passage, he says, look, you, you, you're bringing blasphemy on God. Here's a great example of this. Remember in the Old Testament when Abram was asked about Sarai? And, and the Pharaoh was, 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 took, a, took a, a notice of her and he was interested in her. And Abraham denied that she was his wife when they were in Egypt. And when that happened, here's what happened. Abram ceased to be a source of blessing to the Egyptians when he denied that, when he lied. And eventually Pharaoh discovered the truth. He, he found out the truth, and what he demanded was that, that Abram would tell him. And notice what the Bible says in Genesis 12, in verse 18. Pharaoh called Abram, and he said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? Why didst thou not tell me that she was thy wife? Why saidest thou she is my sister? Now here's what happened. Because he would not tell the truth, what happened is, is that Abram's testimony before, let me say it this way, Abraham's testimony for God Jehovah was finished in Pharaoh's eyes. In other words, Pharaoh thought to himself, if this is God's people, and this is the kind of testimony that they have, I want nothing to do with God. See, Abram had an opportunity to do the right thing, but there was a spiritual insolvency there. You remember David's sin with Bathsheba. It follows the same situation. You know the story how David sees Bathsheba, and of course, he commits that awful sin. And the Bible says in 2 Samuel 12, look at these words, how be it, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. You see, there's, there, this, is, this is what we see here, is that David is held, and this is amazing to me, because, look, you don't have to tell unsaved people how Christians should live. They already know it, right? I mean, by and large, unsaved people know what a Christian, how they should live, how they should act. And when David commits this sin, David is held up deridingly by unbelievers, as an example of, listen to God's words, a man after God's own, what? Heart. Well, this is the kind of guy that has a heart for God that would do something like that? And this is what we see from these people. Look, the conclusion of this whole thing about their orthodoxy, their shallow orthodoxy, is that mere orthodoxy in religion, listen now, Mere orthodox in religion does not make one more acceptable to God. It, 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 gives you, there's no, it gives you no greater standing with God. And by the way, it doesn't impress man either. Just having a form of mere orthodoxy. So we see their shallow orthodoxy that they had been given access to the truth and that they were accountable for that truth. But then notice he moves on to this in verse 25. Their scrupulous ordinances. Now, again, as religious people that he's describing here, they believed because of who they were that they had a special standing with God because they meticulously kept the ordinances and the rituals of their religion. This describes many people today. This is the kind of background I grew up in. 
keeping those rituals, keeping those man-made ordinances. And so Paul here continues, he shows that mere rituals, ordinances, give no preference with God. And so Paul is dealing with these ordinances, but the ordinances that he's dealing with here, if you go back and study it out, he's dealing with those that were under the ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. He deals with the rite of circumcision. It, it's mentioned here, we just read it. Now, again, you may, may or may not understand this, but circumcision was the outward seal of the Abrahamic covenant. It was administered on every male infant boy, this, this rite of circumcision. Now, the Jew thinks that his circumcision gives him special status with God. Now, let's talk about this for a minute, because as he, Paul writes about their scrupulous ordinances, notice he mentions in verse 25 the fact of this, the limited value of rituals. The limited value of rituals. Look at verse number 25. We're just going verse by verse. He says in verse 25, For circumcision verily profiteth, notice these words, if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Now when we look at this, he's talking about the fact that this is the law that God has given to them. A rite or a ritual is only meaningful if it is the outward expression of an inward experience. We had a young man get baptized this morning. He's here tonight. And he got baptized. It was an outward expression of what had taken place in his heart in the past. You see, when somebody gets saved, you don't see salvation because it takes place in the heart. But scriptural baptism is an outward expression. It's identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, with his teachings. And so when we look at this matter of circumcision in the life of the Jew, for circumcision to be of any practical value, listen, the Jew must keep the law of God. For it to be of any practical value, the Jew must keep the law. But listen, here's the catch. That's humanly impossible. No one can keep the law. The Bible says if you've offended one point, you've offended the whole law. Now, it's an honorable thing to try to keep the law. I wish more people kept the law. But understand that the law was never meant to, to, to save us, to bring us to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law does have a purpose. And so when you look at this matter of the law, it's, he says here, look at it again in verse 25, but if thou be a breaker of the law, my circumcision is, or thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. What he's saying here is to break the law is to render the ritual of circumcision null and void. In other words, you know what? You just lost your standing with God. So you thought that your circumcision gave you special standing or special status with God, but because you're a breaker of the law, you have no standing with God. Are you with me tonight? I'm not reading between the lines, folks. I'm just preaching the Bible. This is what the Word of God says. Now notice in verse 26, because he talks about, in verse 25, the law that God has given, but notice in verse 26 and verse 27, he talks about the light that a person has. Look what the Bible says here. In verse number 26, he says, Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law, shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision, and shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law? Now here's Paul's argument. That if a religious person breaks the clear teaching of the Word of God, it, what he does is he cancels everything which the divinely given ritual stands for. In this instance, he, he keeps making reference to circumcision because he's dealing with Jewish people. 
So Paul isn't saying, and get this, he is not saying that a divinely appointed ritual has no value. He's not saying that. That's not at all what he's making reference to here. He is saying that the value of it is limited by the condition of a person's heart. See, that's, that's, the, that's the real point there is. Because God is interested in your heart. It's not a ritual. It's not an ordinance. A good way to illustrate this, when Hebrew boys, Jewish boys, are 13 years of age, they go through something called a bar mitzvah. And it's, it's a ceremony where they're saying publicly that he is going from being a boy to being a man. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and I think everybody would agree with this. Some ceremony that they're acknowledging he's going from a boy to a man, that ceremony doesn't make that boy a man. You see, there's much more to it than that. Now, it's good to acknowledge that he's reached that age. But can I also tell you that nor does performing a ceremony make a person a Christian. People have asked me, you know, about, about dedicating their children. And we dedicate children here to the Lord. But I've had people, when they've asked me that and I've talked to them, they want me to do that because they have somewhere along the way erroneously been led to believe that if, if their child is dedicated to God, that that's the same as salvation. There's also people who believe that if you go through a baptistry, that you're going to go to heaven. See, if there's no salvation, there's no repentance, there's no turning to God and acknowledging the fact that they need Jesus to get to heaven, then going through 50 baptistries is not going to do anything for you. You're still going to miss heaven. So we have to understand, as Paul is writing here, that there's, he's talking about a limited value. He's not saying that some of these rituals don't have value. He's just saying it's limited. But then notice also in verse 28, he talks about a limitless value of reality. I always love the fact Paul was a man that I believe in many regards was a realist. You know, he, he understood things. Even though he had the background that he did, God opened his eyes, the Spirit was leading in his life. And folks, look, we, we are prone sometimes to be satisfied with trying to keep the letter of the law, but while we're trying to keep the letter of the law, we're ignoring its deep spiritual implications. In other words, the law does have value. It, it's important for us to understand that. And so as you think about this, I mentioned it a minute ago, what does God look at? God looks upon the what? The heart. You remember the whole passage in how, how Samuel was told by God, and Samuel goes and he finds Jesse. Jesse had how many sons? He had eight sons. I heard somebody recently say ten. I'm like, well, he must have had a couple that he didn't know about. But there were seven of them lined up. Samuel comes, and he begins with the oldest, and God says, that's not him. Goes to the second one, nope, that's not him. Third, fourth, fifth. Gets to the last one, surely this has got to be him. This is the last boy, and we all know the story, right? David wasn't there. He was out tending to his father's sheep. And, and, and you think about that passage, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, 12, he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy and with all of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look on. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. It's amazing when I look at that and I think about the life of David and the studies I've done on him, the kingly, kingly qualities of David, they were there. But they were inward at that time. They were not outward. God knew that. God knew those qualities were there. And Paul, what is he doing in this, in this portion as we get to the end of chapter 2? Paul's indicting the Hebrews because he is putting his trust in ritual rather than in the reality that there has to be a true experience with God. In other words, the heart's not changed. 
circumcision is not going to avail you. And so they're, they're scrupulously saying, hey, we're keeping the ordinances. Now, I'll tell you this, that when you, and if you've ever done this, I've had religious discussions with people, not just Jewish people, but many people. And I've tried my best, number one, to take the right approach, number two, to speak the truth in love, number three, to not be argumentative. But anytime you start talking about somebody's orthodoxy, they don't want to hear about it. And what's going to happen is, is you're going to find yourself in an all-out fight. And so notice thirdly tonight, their scrupulous objections to what Paul writes about them. They're not just going to sit by and listen to all this. And that's where we get to chapter three. Now, it's amazing when you begin to uh, talk about religion with people, how clever they get when you question their relationship with God. You ever had one of those conversations with someone? Mine, a lot of times, came with family members. And my wife will probably tell you that many of hers was with me before I got saved. One of the interesting conversations was the woman at the well. Remember the story that John 4, Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. He goes and he sits by the well. He knew the woman was going to come and she comes when nobody's there. She brings her, her, her pail for some water and Jesus begins this discussion with her. And here she is conversing with the Son of God. She doesn't realize who he is. And, and she was perfectly fine with the discussion with Jesus as long as the truth was not uncomfortably close to her. You know, she, she raised the issue while she was talking to Jesus. Remember, she asked which of the two places was more favored by God as the place that God would, would want to be worshipped. In John 4, 20, there in your notes, she said to him, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. See, she didn't mind talking and having a discussion that was centered on religion as long as the spotlight didn't come near her own soul. That's the way a lot of people are. They'll talk to you about the weather, sports. But boy, when you get down to brass tacks and you start talking to them about Jesus is the Son of God, a lot of Jewish people, I'll knock on their door and, you know, outside of maybe, what is it called, uh, hanging on the door, Robert? Yeah, I can't pronounce it a lot of times, but I'll see that on their door. And so I'll immediately know either both or one of them is a Jew. So I'll knock on the door just like every other door. By the way, I don't have a mindset, oh, it's a Jew. It's going to be a bad call. But when I knock on the door and they open the door, I'll say the same thing to them. How you doing? My name is Dane Keeley. I'm from Bible Baptist Church. And, and immediately, no, I'm a Jew. That's what they say to me. No, I'm a Jew. And I'll say, well, you know, Jesus was a Jew. And they'll just kind of look at me. Well, I know that. I mean, they're, they're, they're just shut down. They don't want to talk to anybody. And that's the way this woman at the well was with Jesus. She didn't mind discussing anything as long as it deal, didn't deal with her own soul and her own situation. Jewish religious objections to Paul. As they began to object to some of the things, and by the way, the things that Paul was sharing about them and with them, were they Paul's opinions and thoughts? No. It was the Word of God. And you know what the Bible says? The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the soul and spirit, the joints and marrows. Listen, the Word of God does the work. Also, a lot of times we think to ourselves, well, what would I say to somebody? Share the Bible with them. What did Jesus do when he encountered Satan in the wilderness? He quoted Scripture. There's nothing more powerful than the Word of God, folks. And, and the objections that they had, look, their problem wasn't Paul. The problem was their heart because they had a problem with what God was saying about them. And we need to understand this when we're dealing with people, not just Jewish people, even religious people. Many people are like this. And, and, and again, this is the context tonight, how, how shallow and trivial their objections were. Notice letter A here. They talked about, they argued about that which was right was wrong. That which was right was wrong. Do you know that's the world we live in today? Right is not right anymore. Right is wrong. Look what it says in verse number one. 
He sa- the Bible says here, what advantage hath, the, hath then the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? So these folks here, they objected to the truths that Paul was sharing about them. Why did they object to them? Because they thought that the truths that Paul was sharing actually undermined the privileges that belonged to them as Jewish people. So they felt like Paul was undermining them. But no, what Paul was doing is he understood this, that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. By the way, you study the scriptures, here's what you find is, it didn't matter if it was a Jew or a Gentile, Paul shared the truth with everyone. And we ought to be the same way. I get around some, some missionaries, some pastors, and, and you know maybe, maybe they don't, but here's what it sounds like to me is, 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 oh, I've got a ministry to the Jews. I oftentimes think to myself, well, what if you knock on a Gentile's door? Oh, you're a Gentile, I can't talk to you. I got a ministry to the Jews. No, we should talk to everyone. We should share the truth with everyone. So there were some that argued that right was wrong, but then notice in verse 3, they show here that some were arguing that wrong, get this now, that wrong is right. Television, it's amazing. It's amazing the stuff they show on TV now. And they bill it that it's the norm, that it's okay, that it's right. But 20, 30, five years ago, it was wrong. So here they are, they're, they're arguing with Paul and really arguing with God that wrong was right. Look at verse number three, look at these words. He said, the Bible says here, what if some did not what? Believe. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? What's the first two words in verse 4? God forbid. So here they are. They're arguing. Listen to this. They argued that unbelief. Listen, this is what they're saying. I'm not making this up. They're saying that their unbelief actually enhances God's faithfulness. By being uh, not believers, by not believing on the Lord, they believe that enhances God's faithfulness. Look at verse number four. It says, God forbid, yea, let God be true, but let every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. So when you look at verse number four, Paul's replying to them that God is never unfaithful and God never goes back on his word. God is faithful, folks. Look, God is true and every man is a liar. That's what the Bible tells us. That includes all of us. And they're arguing that unbelief enhances God's faithfulness. And here's an amazing thing. When you think about David's experiences, and I I met with a man yesterday that visited our church and His first name was David, and and he says, listen, if I come back, he says, please don't preach on David. I'm like, look, I can't promise you that one. I got a guy named Peter in our church, and I preach on Peter all the time, you know? I'm just glad that there's not somebody in the Bible named Dane, you know? But listen, David was, we just said the verse earlier, he was a man after God's own heart. But did not David make many mistakes in his life? Didn't David sin? Many times. And there's quite a few places where in the Psalms, you see they call them the penitential Psalms of David. It was David's repentance. How about that? I mean, you know, you and I, we've done something wrong. We've asked for forgiveness. How would you like for it to be recorded in the Word of God? where you see it and you read it over and over again. And and Psalm 51 is one of those places where David, get this now, as David writes these words, and it's God's word, but David is actually willing to condemn himself so that it might be seen that God was righteous in his dealings with David. In other words, God judged David 
Look, the Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. If we sin, there is a price tag. The wages of sin is death. And so what David does is he repents. And David was willing, and I love this psalm here, he was willing to condemn himself. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that everybody understood that God was righteous in the way that he dealt with him. And by the way, God has every right to deal with his children however he chooses. Listen, when it comes to parenting, unless I know of mistreatment, I never tell a parent how they should parent their kids. And God deals with David. And listen to what David records in Psalm 51 and verse 4. Listen, against thee, David writes, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. What a wonderful thing. Look, what a great attitude for David to have. God, I'm the problem. I'm the one that's done wrong. And that, honestly, that's what I believe here in, in, in Romans chapter 2, in the last part of the chapter, and beginning of Romans chapter number 3, is, is that God's just trying to get these, these Hebrew people to understand that just like the heathen and just like the hypocrite, you're guilty of sin. Because of the way that you've been living your life and what you need to do is come clean with God. But see, they were a people that believed and argued that their unbelief actually enhances God's faithfulness. But then notice this. They also argued that unrighteousness actually enhances God's forgiveness. I talk about a warped way of thinking. Unrighteousness. That it's going to enhance God's forgiveness. And they argued that it was, it's actually commendable. They were commending people, encouraging people to sin. That's the world we're living in today. I mean, you're driving down the road. You don't want to see that billboard, but it's there. You're on the internet. You're trying to do some work, and something pops up. This world is encouraging people to sin. And they're saying here in these verses that, look, it's okay to sin because it enhances God's forgiveness. They believe that God should not find fault with the Jew for his sin because that sin actually helps to magnify his own character, the character of God. Look at what it says in verse 5 of chapter number 3. The Bible says here, But if our, notice the word, unrighteousness, commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is, God's unrighteous, is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? So Paul responds here with a responding, God forbid. In other words, it's not going to enhance God's forgiveness because God is both just and God is both righteous. And when Paul gets to the end of this portion dealing with the Hebrew people, I want you to notice the last two verses of our text tonight. Look what it says in verse number seven. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come whose damnation is just. Now, did you know the pers- notice the personal pronouns here? God is using Paul to record these words. And why would Paul say this into the end of this passage? Because Paul's enemies were spreading lies about him. They were encouraging sin as a means of enhancing God's glory. They were saying that Paul was doing that. He was encouraging people to do wrong. And so what does Paul do here? He denies these false teachings. And he says here, look, this is not what I've been doing. So when he concludes his case against the Jews, he knew, and we ought to also, that religion in itself cannot exempt anyone from the judgment of God. All of us. Look here. You're either going to stand at the judgment seat of God as a saved person, or you're going to stand at the great white throne of God as an unsaved person. See, everybody's going to stand before God and every knee will bow. 
and every tongue will confess. You see, when I look at this passage, look, the reality is this. Not just taking our passage tonight, but chapters 1, chapters 2, and where we are in 3. That what the Bible is saying here is the Jew and the Gentile, religious, non-religious, whatever you want to call it, that all stand before God guilty. And I want to summarize it tonight with this, because I want you to take this with you and think about this, that there are some things that we should take note of, and they came from chapter 3. And I want you to see these four things about the religious man. Number one is the religious man's law could not save him. The religious man's law could not save him. Look, it is not the possession of the law that saves, but rather the performance of God's will that makes the difference. What is God's will? That all men would be saved. That's God's will. There's not a different salvation for the Jew than there is for the Gentile. All are saved the same way, by grace through faith. So look, the law, the religious man's law could not save him. Number two, the religious man's circumcision could not save him. His circumcision could not save him. Listen to this. The Jew had forgotten that circumcision was the seal of faith, but it's not the source of faith. It's the seal of faith, but it's not the source. The source of our faith is who? Jesus. So look, the law could not save them. Their circumcision cannot save them. Number three, the religious man's birth could not save him. I love what somebody said, and this isn't original with me, but he says, salvation does not come through place, through face, or through race. It only comes through grace. That's, that's how we're saved, folks, by the grace of God. So their salvation does not come by birth. But notice fourthly, that the religious man has no advantage over the Gentiles. Now let me make a little preface here. Because the Jews did have a national advantage over the Gentiles. And the reason is, the Bible mentions, because unto them was committed the oracles of God. They have a national advantage, but... They do not have a spiritual advantage over the Gentiles. You see, God loves everyone, for God so loved the world. Now, the Bible tells us to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Now, here's what I want to say to you tonight, because even though Israel had rejected Christ, God would not let his promises fail. See, they didn't recognize him as the Messiah, but guess what? Every promise that God has made to Israel, God will keep those promises. And they can rest in those. So when you get to chapter 3, here's what you find is there were three questions. And listen to the first one. What advantage is it to be a Jew? And you know what the advantage is? They possess the word of God. They have the truth. They have access to it. And they have an accountability that comes with that access. The second question that he asked is, Will Jewish unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? What's the answer to that? No, it will not. The truth is, it actually establishes God's faithfulness. And then the third one is, if our sin commends His righteousness, how can He judge us? And the answer to that question is that we do not do evil, that good may come of it. God judges the world righteously. The bottom line is this, we're all guilty. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? Let's pray tonight. Lord, thank you again for the truth of the word of God. And certainly as we look at this passage, maybe it was a help to some that have trusted in things. And and certainly there is a purpose behind even some of the rituals that were given to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people, but as we think about it, it does not give them an advantage over anyone else because what God is looking for is, is their heart turned towards Him. Have they opened their heart to receive Him? I pray if there's someone here tonight that does not know Christ as their Savior. God, I pray that what man has tried to do, and that is to create divisions, and we know the devil's 
working hard to divide us. That, Lord, we wouldn't allow anything to come between us and the truth. That we would see it for what it is. I pray that a passage like we see tonight that is not an easy one to get a hold of, but as we took a good look at it tonight, we understand how much you love the Hebrew as much as you love the heathen and the hypocrite. And you love them so much that you sent your son that all of us could have eternal life. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be more effective in our witness. I try to be patient and loving when I come across someone that is a Hebrew because you want them to know that there is, there is a way that they can know for sure that they can have eternal life. And that is through your son, Jesus. I pray that you would open the eyes of Jewish people to help them to see that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed one of God, that he is the only way to heaven. Lord, I pray that you'd help us, give us a heart for no matter who it is, to share the truth with them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.